through our study of the book of Revelation. Um, before I read through this, uh, this chapter, I just want to point out, and, and we're going to get a real good glimpse of this, obviously we go through this, but we're going to really start to, uh, again, focus back in on the end times events in regards to the wrath of God. We're going to read about the seven angels um, that are mentioned here that um, will be taking the, the bold judgments. And it's the, the final judgment. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, you're going to read, we're going to read there, it says that in them the wrath of God is complete. And um, there's a good reason for us to study through this as believers because um, even though we've been saved from the wrath of God, the Bible tells us the wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin, because of our rebellion, it was poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. Every bit of it. There's none stored up for you and I. God's not mad at us. God's not looking to judge us. Um, he's forgiven us of everything. And the Bible tells us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been justified. And, and we stand before God um, sinless in His eyes because of the blood that we're covered, that new covenant that we've received through Jesus Christ where He's done all the work, all the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the debt that you and I deserved Jesus took upon Himself at the cross. And um, you and I get to live as those who have never sinned before, just as though we've never sinned before before God. God sees us in that way. So when we come to these sections and we study about the, the, the coming wrath of God and knowing that you and I aren't going to be participants in this, that God's going to protect us, that His wrath isn't going to be poured out us, we might wonder why. What is the reason for this? And, and for us knowing, for us seeing, for us uh, uh, looking at the details that even the Word of God gives us about what God's wrath is like and why it's coming and what it's going to be like when it gets here. And this chapter here kind of gives us, it kind of answers those questions as far as what do we as believers do with this today? And it's the same thing that we see taking place here in chapter 15. We have a response we should still respond to this. And, and the cool thing about it is, is, uh, is because God's love's been poured out upon us and manifested to us and, 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 and given to us there at the cross. And of course, every single day since then that we, that we live and, and it's God's grace and it's His undeserved merit and it's God's unconditional love. But in all of that, what, what, we, what, we, what I want you to see as we, as we look at this and, and take this forward is that um, our response needs to be one, not of fear, first of all, because it says that perfect love, God's love, casts out fear. And when you know that you've been set free from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, there's no longer fear. We live in joy. We live in peace. Now, now when, we, when we still sin, we confess our sin, and God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, the Bible tells us, and, and we move on. But we don't, we don't, we don't confess and, 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 and move forward in our relationship with God out of fear, not, only, not from fear of the judgment that we sometimes know that we deserve and think that we might get. Because sometimes we sin and we go, oh, God's going to get me now. And that's not it. God doesn't... God doesn't Keep a, a, a tally and go, okay, one more time, Sean, and you're done. Now, I might think that. I've thought that in my mind. But you know what? I wake up the next morning, and the Bible, it, it, what the Word of God tells me is true. God's mercy is new every morning. And God's grace is more than enough. And, and um, uh, it, it's an amazing thing. But the truth is, in light of all of that, is, and maybe there's even someone here this morning 
But the truth is, is there's reason for people who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ to fear. And they are afraid. And they're afraid because they know. The Bible tells us that God's put eternity into our hearts, into the heart of men. And, and when you understand that we are eternal beings that are going to live in etern- for all eternity, just, and, and when you're uncertain of what that looks like, there's fear. And here's the reason why. is because everybody's the same as us. We wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and, and we look beneath the surface uh, of, of what we see on the outside and we see into our hearts and God reveals to us and we go, there's no hope for me apart from, we know, apart from Jesus Christ. And if you look at yourself and you wake up in the morning and you don't know Jesus Christ and you've not put your faith in Him and you have eternity in your heart and you know that things are winding down, you know that God's a just God, you see, even the world today who don't put their faith in God cry out to God and they say that He's unjust. They say that He's unfair in, in many different ways. And they don't know, they don't know Him. And that's why they say these things. They have, a, they have a, a satanic view of God. And what I mean by that is they're deceived. They're deceived into knowing the truth about our God who is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God who came to give His life for those of this world, his creation, all of us, for the atheist, for the homosexual, for the bank robber, for the murderer, for the liar, for the thief. God came to give his life for all of us. He sent his son. And so as we understand this, we should be moved. As we see God's judgment, we should be moved. There should be a response from us. And so I lay all of that out because that's what I really want us to glean from this morning. Chapter 15 is what our response is. Not only individually in our own relationship with God, it's our heart should be filled with, with praise and thanks, but also how do we respond and how do we interact with the world as a result of these things? You know, this morning is, is the second Sunday of the month and we have the chairs up front and the front rows blocked off and the elders are going to come forward at the end as we do another co- a couple songs of worship at the end of service. And, and often it's, it's a time of making our requests known to God for sickness, for relationships, for for finances, for lots of different things. But the truth is, is it's more than that. It's also a time of intercessory prayer where we can meet together, be together, pray together, and lift up the needs of those around us. And every one of us knows somebody who's not given their life to Christ. Perhaps it's a mom. Perhaps it's a a dad, a father, a, a, a child a sister, a brother, a neighbor, a friend, someone dear to us who has not yet given their lives to Christ that is doomed not only for the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon this earth, doomed for that, but doomed for all eternity to spend it separated from God. And so I would encourage you as you're hearing these things this morning, knowing that we're going to come forward and take this time as we worship at the end of the service in prayer, I would encourage you to take that step of coming forward at the very least and setting yourself aside. Maybe there's things that you could pray for for yourself as well, but at least coming forward and lifting up those whom we know in prayer for their salvation. Each one of us have come to the Lord because someone's been praying for us. I know in my life, I look back, there were that, that, that it was intercessory prayer. People who prayed for me that, that opened the door for my salvation, that led me to Christ. 
And prayer is a powerful thing. And God tells us to pray. And He instructs us to prayer. And many, many times in the New Testament, there's examples of corporate prayer. And, and, and the Bible tells us to do this. And so I would encourage you to step forward in faith and again reach out and pray for that person who you know, who you love, has not given their life to the Lord. Yet that is doomed for these things that we read about here in the chapter and the end of this book. If you want to uh, look at verse 1 with me, we're going to read through the chapter. I'll pray afterwards and then we'll begin to dissect it. But in verse 1, chapter 15, the Word of God says, John the Apostle writing, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they, verse 3, sing the song of Moses, the sermon of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Verse 5, John writes and says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle and the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure light linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then verse 8, the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Father, we do ask, God, that Your Holy Spirit would be upon us as Rob already prayed. God, that Your Holy Spirit would be here teaching us. God, You tell us very clearly that the natural man cannot discern spiritual things. But God, You've placed Your Spirit in us. And God, You pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us so that we, Father, may know You, know the truth of Your Word. And God, we desire for a revelation this morning that You would reveal truth to us. God, that You would reach into our hearts, do a work, Lord, draw us to You. Lord, we know that the things that we're reading about here are going to come to pass. And Father, we believe from what Your Word says that they're coming quickly. I pray, God, that You would help us to maintain momentum. Father, that we would continue to run this race that You have called us to run. That we would persevere, Father. That we would have endurance. Lord, that we wouldn't let off the gas pedal. But God, that we would see that, that, that time is short. That things are coming to an end. And Lord, that the, 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 the answers You've given us, the hope that You've given us, the joy and peace and salvation that You've given us is something that the world is in desperate need of. I pray, God, that You would use this as salt and light, Lord to share this truth and hope that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we begin to go through this, I want to point out um, and remind you that when we ended chapter 14 last week, we clearly saw 
as we are transitioning again to this time of God's wrath being poured out, we clearly saw that when God's wrath is poured out, you remember the language that we were studying through last week, that it said that, that, it's, that the earth becomes ripe, or that when God's judgment is poured out, the earth, the earth is ripe for judgment. And I explained that the, that word there is a Greek word that really refers to an overripeness, like a piece of fruit rotting on a tree. And, and, and as we see that, we're again given this clear picture that, that, that when the earth and those who dwell upon it appear, uh, or when the judgment of God comes, that it appears to be at a time um, uh, when it's past due for God's judgment. When, when those who are on the earth, and, and perhaps leading up to that seven-year period of time before the rapture of the church, as we know that it's growing darker, as we know that as lawlessness uh, continues to abound, that we look at it and we go, it's overripe. It's time. Why, why is God delaying? And, and we see that even now, and, and if you're like me, you wonder how much worse can it get? And again, I think it's another indicator that, that God's time, uh, 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 the Lord's return and God's time of judgment is coming soon, that it's coming quickly. And all this is a reminder for us as we look about the earth and see the injustice, we see the lawlessness, we see really God-haters upon this earth, we see that God's long-suffering, again, that God's not quick to judge. And yet we see here from chapter 15, we see here clearly that there's coming a time when God is going to pour out His wrath in judgment of those who have rejected and rebelled against Him. And you know, the Bible even tells us that there are those who are going to begin to mock God because we are a light to them. We're a witness to them. We bear truth to them. And one of the things that we must tell people in truth is not only that God's a God of grace, that God's a God of mercy, that God's a God who forgives, but our God, we must tell people, is a God who stands against unjust things. He is a God who is going to judge. He's a God who will pour out His wrath. And as we as Christians proclaim that truth, and the world knows this already to some degree, the Bible tells us that because of the the, the nature of God, because of the long-suffering and merciful nature of God, there are going to be people who scoff and mock and say, oh yeah, where is your God? Look around. Why hasn't He judged? And as we, can, as we continue now into chapter 15, what we're really seeing is a, prepar- a preparation, a heavenly preparation for, for the wrath of God. And, and we see that this is the final, this is the completed um, a wrath of God that comes through these bold judgments and these seven angels that come to pour out God's wrath. And as we see this, pre- as we look at this preparation, we're given another look into heaven. That's what John says in the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1. We get another look into heaven, and we're told of what will be happening in heaven before the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon the earth. And this is the, the premise for, for what we can see in application to our own life. As you see all of heaven preparing for God's wrath being poured out, and we alone also know that God's wrath is going to be pre- poured out, how should we be prepared for that? What should we be doing? Now, this look into heaven before the judgment of God is released is really a consistent, or it's really consistent with what we've already previously seen. We've seen the same kind of thing throughout the book of Revelation. Specifically, when we look back or when we were reading about the opening of the seven seals on the scroll, 
There was also a glimpse or a, or a glance into heaven about what was taking place in heaven at that time, uh, previous or prior to that or leading up to that. And also the same kind of a thing when we were reading about the sounding of the seven trumpets, the judgments of the trumpets. <clears throat> and so as we go through this chapter, it's important to understand that these things in this chapter are happening specifically in light of God's coming judgment, of His coming wrath, specifically the wrath of God being poured out and what we'll see in this chapter and in the chapter to come, specifically the wrath of God at this time being poured out upon Satan, upon his man, the Antichrist, and upon his kingdom that has been established, that satanic kingdom that's been established on, on the earth during this time. And this is the focus and even the aim if you will, of the seven bowl judgments. And when we get to chapter 16, we're going to see that when each bowl is poured out, and you can read ahead and look, but when each one of the bowls are pulled out, these poured out, these wraths of these wraths of God, it's directed at Satan and directed at those who have taken the mark of the beast. Now, one of the other things that we need to keep in mind as we continue on is that the main reason. And maybe you've been thinking about this. These kinds of things go through my mind anyway, and, 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 and hopefully you think these, this way too. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, I hope not. But <laughs> um, one of the main reasons for the seven years of tribulation, you ever think about that? Why seven years? You know, one of the main reasons for the seven years of tribulation, it's, it's, it's for God to do a work. It's not about God just going, okay, I'm going to destroy everything. It's going to take me seven years to do it. It's specifically a period of time in where God's doing a work in His people, right? In the nation of Israel. And that's one of the other arguments against replacement theology, where, God's, where, where, where the, there's members and people in the church who teach that God's done with the nation of Israel. Well, if God's done with the nation of Israel, then there's no reason for the seven-year period of time in which God's wrath is being poured out. Because it's also primarily a time where God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And this is important to keep in mind as we read about the outpouring of God's wrath because if the tribulation was just about God's judgment, if the tribulation was just about God's wrath, there would be no reason for it to last seven years. In other words, God could easily do all that He had set out to do in, in, in pouring out wrath, in pouring out judgment against Satan and against those who follow Him. He could take care of it in an instant. But because God is interested in saving His chosen people and as a whole having the nation of Israel turn back to Him, we see that God spreads out His wrath over a seven-year period of time. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah chapter 30, we're told about this. We're told about this period of time, and it's specifically referred to not as seven years of tribulation, but it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And God will use this time, and God will use these events that take place in order to do a work in and to change the hearts of the Jewish people. And, and saying in, 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 in Jeremiah chapter 30 that He will be their God and they will be His people. Now, is God still their God today? Absolutely. But... They're not his God. By far, the, 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 the overwhelming faith 
in Israel today, right now, when you do a poll, the majority of the Hebrew people right now are, are atheists. If you go and study polls, they don't believe in God at all. And as we look at this time of Jacob's trouble and this time of God doing this work in the Hebrew people, um, if you look to the book of Revelation, you, or excuse me, the book of Roman, the book of Romans, this, this time that God's going to spend with His people, the seven years is further spoken about by the Apostle Paul, who, who writes first in the book of Romans, and he clearly teaches us that salvation, the salvation of God, is by faith alone saying that all men today, right now, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, that all men alike, the Bible says in Romans, Paul writing, are justified by faith and not by our works. In light of this, Paul, in chapter 8, I love that chapter, but you know it in, in chapter 8, Paul, in light of that salvation by grace through faith for all men, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Paul goes then on in chapter 8 and details God's grace. He details God's everlasting love that he says that we cannot be separated from. Then he shifts gears. It's a cool chapter, starting in chapter 9. Go and read Romans chapter 9 on through Romans chapter 11 in light of what we're reading, in light of what we're talking about here, because Paul then shifts gears and then he goes on to detail how God has made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, saying that he basically says, I'm not done with them yet. He says, even though for this time, this time of God's grace, that it is both to the Jew and the Gentile alike, God is saying, I'm not done with the nation of Israel. I'm not done with my people yet. And in doing so, Paul says that he explains a mystery to us. He explains a mystery and says that, specifically he says that after the time that God has sent aside for the Gentiles, he said after that time is complete, it says, to the, it says when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, specifically this time where God's dealing with us as His church, it says that He will then do a work. And He says He will heal Israel's spiritual blindness during this time, this time of Jacob's trouble, that He has reserved for Him. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 25-27, through 27, we read where Paul writes about this and he says, he says, he says, guys, he says, for I do not desire brothers or brethren that you would be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. You know what that really refers to? It says, unless you, what Paul's saying there, unless you become prideful. Unless you become prideful, wise in your own opinion. That blindness, he says, in part has happened to Israel. And, and that's an interesting thing. In part, why? Because Jew and Gentile are being saved today, individually, by the grace of God. In part, it says, blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when you study that out and you look at other passages in Scripture, the Bible tells us that God knows how many of us Gentiles are going to come to Him. He knows how many of us will put our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's still our free will decision, but He knows. And He says when that last one confesses 
Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's going to be a door that's closed on a period of time, and it's going to usher in this last seven years. It says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, God goes on to say, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Why? Paul quotes in this this Old Testament passage, he says, for this is my covenant with them. This is my promise to them. This is my word to them. And our God is a God of covenants. He's a God who keeps His promises. He does not break His word. And God says, it is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The point is, all of these things in the book of Revelation that we have been reading about and that we will continue to read about, they've got to be looked through this lens. Through this lens of what God is going to do with His people Israel in order that they might be one day restored to Him. And with this in mind, we again look again with this lens in John's words in, in, in the Word of God through John in verses 1-3. through three. And John says, Then I saw another sign. Or again, there was this other sign in heaven. He says, There's a great and marvelous sign. Seven angels having seven last plagues. For in it, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw standing like a sea, or I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over, his, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now, this is the third time. Here in verse 1 is the third time that John tells us about looking into heaven and seeing a sign. The first was back in chapter 12, verse 1. And, and, and this is where John tells of seeing a sign in heaven, specifically saying that he saw a woman clothed with the sun. Remember that woman? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head she had this garland of 12 stars. And as we studied this, as we begin to study this symbolism out, this sign that John's seen in heaven at that time, we turn to the Old Testament and we cross-reference this symbolism um, uh, with identical symbolism that is spoken of in the Old Testament and also not only spoken of, but said, this is what these things are. And in doing so, we could clearly see how this woman in, in, in that John saw, this sign of this woman is symbolic of the nation of Israel. The second time John wrote about seeing a sign in heaven was also in chapter 12 in verse 3. And here, as John sees the second sign, he describes seeing that, that fiery red dragon. And um, uh, there was really no need for us to take the symbolism there and trying to figure out what it was because John describes the, the, the dragon as saying that it has seven heads with seven crowns and ten horns on its head. And then in the verses that followed there in chapter 12, John clearly said that the dragon is Satan. But now in these verses, in this third glimpse into heaven, where there's this third sign <coughs> that John sees, we read that John reports seeing the first thing that he says is that it's great and marvelous. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that would be how all of us would report seeing these things. If, if you were 
if God was to give us the, the honor, the privilege of getting a glimpse into heaven and the things that take place there, specifically into the throne room of God, uh, I, I mean, great and marvelous might be some of the words that we use to describe what we see. Great and marvelous. As he specifically says, sees seven angelic messengers in heaven, but seven angelic messengers in heaven ready to deliver the last of God's judgments and to bring an end to all of the wrath that's going to be poured out. When John sees this, he says it's great and it's marvelous. As John again is peering into heaven like he did back in Revelation chapter 4, um, where he first described what the heavenly throne room of God looked like, he also reported back in Revelation chapter 4, for remember, this is not the first time that this sea of glass, so to speak, has been spoken of. And John speaks of that in Revelation chapter 4 as he describes the throne room of God, saying that there's a sea of glass before the very seat that God sits upon. And, 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 and this is very similar to what John wrote back in chapter 4. But if you remember in chapter 4, verse, verse 6, John said that this sea of glass at that time, he said it looked like a crystal. But now he says that it looks like glass mingled with fire. And we got to think of this in conjunction with what's taking place at this time. What are we being told of at this time? A sea of glass mingled with fire. And in light of this, there are a few things that we need to consider. The first is that according to chapter 4, if we look back for, before that, that this sea of glass is laid out before the throne room of God. And when we were studying through chapter 4, I also pointed out that how specifically in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 23, it tells us that, if you remember, the temple that had been constructed here on earth, the Jewish temple, that it was a copy or a model of God's throne room. So if we take God's throne room and the description that we are given and overlay that in a sense with what we know in the Old Testament about the, the, the way that the temple was laid out and what, what kind of things were seen in the temple, we can, we, can, <clears throat> we can take or determine the earthly representation of the sea of glass that is seen in heaven by John and, and, and deduce that it's really the bronze sea or the bronze laver that is before the altar of God in the temple that's described in 2 Chronicles chapter 4. And, and you guys probably read through some of that when I pointed it out before. If you didn't, and this is kind of new news to you, go read 2 Chronicles chapter 4 where it's described. Because there's a lot of interesting things there that helps us understand what we're reading about here. And when we study 2 Chronicles chapter 4 out, we find out that the Bronze Sea, not only was it located um, between the tabernacle of meeting, in other words, where all the people would come to offer their sacrifices and the altar of sacrifice between there, it was the place specifically where the priest would go to perform all the ceremonial washings before, during, and after making the sacrifices for the nation of Israel. So if you would come with your, with your sacrificial offering, you, you would come into the tabernacle of meeting, and you would see this great bronze laver filled with water, and, and, and elevated up would be the altar of sacrifice with the priests there, and, and the, the priests would wash themselves before, during, and after the sacrifices that you would bring. And even though these ceremonial washings, they were representative of purity, 
and holiness. Okay, keep that in mind. The bronze laver was a picture of purity and holiness, and we see that as a copy of the heavenly things, the same kind of things transcend into that. As we see that they were representative of purity and holiness, we remember or we're told all throughout the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament that neither the washings that the priest went through nor the sacrifices that the Levite priests made, none of these things really ever had a power to make a person spiritually clean, did they? They were just symbolic representations. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that when Jesus offered up His life, as we've been talking about already this morning, when Jesus offered up His life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, we became clean. Holy, pure, undefiled because of the blood of Jesus. But even though we have been made spiritually clean through the blood of Jesus, the Bible also teaches us as believers, those who have been sanctified positionally, that we're still in the process of sanctification, right? Not only that, the Bible clearly tells us that, that, that we need to be washed ongoingly, that we need to be cleansed ongoingly, and we are done so now by the Word of God. It is the Word of God that has taken this over in replacement, so to speak, of what the bronze laver was a figurative representation of. And just like we are truly made clean and holy because of the blood of Jesus, when we become defiled by our own sin or by the thoughts in our minds or because of the filth that's in this world, it is the Word of God that purifies us and takes us through this ongoing process of sanctification. And in light of this fact, the Word of God is spoken of often as a tool of cleansing. And the bronze sea was used for the ceremonial washing in the temple sacrifices. We see a connection there. And we can connect the dots as we investigate now this sign in heaven that John speaks of seeing. In other words, as John sees this, this, this um, sea of glass in heaven... The first attribute that you should notice is that John describes it in both places as a solid. He, just, he, he says it's like a sea of glass. And you would describe a sea, you know, you don't try to walk out on the ocean, you're going to sink. But here we even see people standing upon this sea of glass. This thing that looked like a crystal, it was solid in form, in nature. It is not a liquid. And according to verse 2, like I, I pointed out there, it is where it says that people are even standing on it. And you know what this should remind you of? It should remind us of the fact that, that as we live our lives today, we need to be standing upon the Word of God. That sanctifies us, that purifies us, that cleanses us because it's solid. It's secure. And in addition to seeing the sea here in heaven in the throne room of God as solid as a solid thing, John now says it's a little different. He says that it's mingled with fire. He didn't say that the first time. He says crystal clear. A sea of glass like crystal clear. But now John says that it's mingled with fire. And when we're connecting the dots and looking at these things, you have to go, well, what's changed? Well, right now we're reading about in chapter 1 or in verse 1 that, that we're being told about the completeness of the fullness of the wrath of God at this time. And as it's mingled with fire, all of heaven is being seen now as preparing for what? 
preparing for the, the judgment of God, the final judgment of God. And again, it should point us to the fact that the Word of God, which washes us clean, is also like fire. The Word of God is also like fire in that it refines. Fire refines, fire purifies, fire cleanses us as it burns away what is impure from our hearts and from our minds. In light of this, we can all see that, that by this sign that John sees in heaven that this final judgment of God, specifically as we look at it in context to what it's now telling us about, is that this final judgment of God is going to go forth as God's prophetic word, in fulfillment of God's prophetic word, with the intent or with the purpose of purifying and cleansing the earth, God's creation of all of its filthiness, its uncleanness. And in verse 2, if you look there, we're told that those, this is the other interesting thing, is, is that those who are standing upon this sea of glass that's mingled with fire are those who what, specifically? Those who have victory. Victory over Satan, over his kingdom. And these are the ones that are standing on the sea of glass. You want victory? over Satan in this life, stand upon the Word of God. And, and, and as we look at this in context, it's clearly referring to the tribulation saints. Those who are standing upon the sea of glass at this time, those who are seen in heaven by John, um, who are defined as those who have victory, it's, it's a clear reference to the tribulation saints. Those who will come to resist the Antichrist during these seven years of tribulation, those who will refuse to take the mark of the beast and, and will ultimately be killed because they will not worship the beast. And if we look ahead to Revelation chapter 20, this is, this is kind of cool in the sense that if you look at the times that we're living in now with what's going on in the Middle East um, and how Christians are being persecuted now. But in Revelation chapter 20, it tells us that during this time that these saints will be killed in a specific way. They'll be killed by having their heads cut off. Sounds like a common practice, does it not? In light of all this, we find it strange, I think, to read here it seems strange that we read here that these who are going to have their heads lopped off are victors. It's not typically a word we would use to describe. But they are described as victors because it says they've endured to the end. They've endured to the end. How many, who, who here has ever felt like giving up? I mean, even in your Christian walk. I mean, there's times when you just... And this is true. I've talked to a lot of you. It seems like when things happen anymore, it doesn't just happen in one thing, does it? It's like seven or eight things. And it seems to just come down upon us. And, 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 and the enemy uses the hardships of this life, the struggles that we go through, to discourage us. And we just go, I can't do it. I can't do it. But these are those who have endured to the end. Meaning specifically that they did not deny Jesus. They did not deny Jesus even though it cost them everything. 
that the world holds dear. And the Bible says these are the victors. These are the victors. Those who lost everything. And it seems ironic, but when we look at the words of Jesus and, 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 and understand that God's kingdom is different than the, the, this earthly kingdom because here the victor is the one who what? Gets everything, right? The one who dies with the most toys, he wins. I mean, that's kind of the mantra of the world today, at least in America. But not so in God's kingdom. He who wins is the one who loses everything and clings to Christ no matter what. Remember, it was Jesus who said in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, He says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? And without a doubt, the life that we've been given to, lo- to live is precious. It's a precious thing, guys. Life is precious. Life is a blessing. This life is a blessing from God. But being a Christian, being a Christian today, being a Christian is not about having your best life now. As some people have written books about. It's not. It's not about having your best life now. Being a Christian is to desire the things of God. Listen, being a Christian is to desire the things of God more than we desire the things of this life. And and being a Christian is to desire to be with God more than we desire our lives here on this earth. Even when your life is like, oh, it's the best it's ever been. And you're like, woohoo! You know what? If that exceeds this desire to be with God, something's wrong. You know, it's real easy when things are bad and down and you're suffering and things aren't, you know, got 23 things piled on, you know, I can do to go, oh, I just want to be with God. And, and that's really, I just want to be out of here. But, but in, in those times of rejoicing, it should still be, God is going to be better. Being with Him in His presence in heaven for all eternity is going to be better. In fact, the Apostle Paul, really, he kind of testifies to this when he wrote, he speaks of this dilemma that he has. I, I, don't, I, I can't really say I, I, I kind of suffer from this dilemma. You remember Paul's talking to, to, the, to these um, people he loves, and he's ending the near, nearing the end of his life, and, and I think it was specifically the Ephesians, and he's all I'm kind of torn. It's kind of good for me to be here with you. I don't know be with God is better, right? He said, but I don't know for sure what I should do. And I'd be like, I'm out of here. Sorry, guys. You do good. You got the Word of God. See ya. And, and Paul, he writes in Philippians kind of about this. He says, for to me live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that, is that truly how we feel? Do we think about that in light of everything we go through in the world today? For me... For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Even Paul said, man, I have great reason, good motive to be here. He still says, to be with Christ is far better. It's far better. 
You see, the point is a Christian victor is a person who glorifies God with the life that they've been given to live. Not just a Christian, but a Christian victor. You want a victory in this life? Victory in the life to come is, is, is rooted in Christ Jesus. He's won the prize for us. And we endure to the end so we may obtain what's already been won for us. But here, there's victory in this life, and it comes by glorifying God in everything that you do in this life that you've been given to live. A Christian victor is one who desires to be absent from the body and present with Jesus, but they are useful in the tools of the as useful tools in the hands of God as we wait to be taken home. A useful tool. A Christian victor, um, they are like these who stand upon the sea of glass. In that, they're the one who resists Satan. Resists the temptations of Satan. Resists his kingdom. And chooses to live and, if necessary, die for Jesus. And I would propose to you that it's much easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for Him. And if you're not living for Him today, how can you say truly that you would die for Him tomorrow? And I pray as we look at this and see this, that we all too would find this place of victory by glorifying Jesus in all that we do. By keeping our eyes into eternity. Keeping our eyes on the eternal prize that Jesus our Savior has laid up for us. And in verse 3, the cool thing about what we see in heaven is that these victors are singing. They're singing. And they're singing, it says, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For, and here's kind of the, the reason that it all boils down to, because your judgments have been manifested. Because your judgments have been manifested. Now, if you look at this, it says that they're singing two songs, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And specifically in verse 3, this is the Song of the Lamb. And the thing to notice about this is that, that this is a song of praise. It's a song of praise. And it's a glorification of Jesus in light of the judgment of God. And it's worth pointing out that the praise and glorification of God is something that is seen in the book of Revelation every single time that we're given a look into heaven. You know what people are doing in heaven? They're praising God. They're singing praise to God. They're glorifying God. Over and over again we see that. Furthermore, it's worth pointing out that not even one time is there any kind of response from any person in heaven to indicate that God is being unfair or unloving in His judgments. No one's like, oh, I can't believe God just did that. What was he thinking? And I point that out because typically when God's wrath and when God's judgments are talked about here on earth, people doubt, don't they? What do they doubt? They doubt if God is truly just or if He's loving. But the fact of the matter is God is more loving. God is more just. 
and more understanding than any person that I've ever come in contact with, including myself. And, and I'm, I'm far from those, those things. And when God does judge and finally pours out His wrath in heaven, what we see in heaven is that heaven sings praise. Heaven rejoices. And they do so because they know this, without a doubt, as they've been in God's presence, they know without a doubt that everything that God does is good because God is good. And everything that God is doing, what we're reading about here, is good. It's good. And in light of this, we need to be careful, and I think we need to check our own hearts when we not only consider hell, God's eternal place of judgment, and God's judgments that we read about here, because to doubt God in these things is really to put ourselves on the judgment seat, and in doing so, we're assuming that we are no more, that, that, or we assume then that we are more loving, that we are more just, and that we are more understanding than God. We go, God, what are you doing? You know, and we may not even do that on this degree where we go to hell and go, how can God send anyone to hell? How can God pour out His wrath upon the world like this? You know, I don't usually move to that place, but I have that same kind of attitude or judgment of God when I go, God, how could you allow for this to happen to me? Why am I going through this? As if God doesn't know what He's doing, and as if not that everything that God is doing is good. And think about it, when we do that, we take the place of God and we go, God, I know more than you. God, I understand more than you. God, I'm more loving than you because if you were doing these things, or if you, you couldn't be any of that. And we've got to be careful with that attitude. Now, what we know, or we know what the, what the song of the Lamb is, it's here. And that, and that it will be sung, but it's not exactly certain for, to us what the Song of Moses is. And it's not because Scripture doesn't tell us, it does. It's just because in the Old Testament, it records two songs of Moses, if you want to go and study it out. The first is Exodus chapter 15, and then again a second Song of Moses in um, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And whatever song you want to go, well, this is the one that they're, they're going to be singing, it, it doesn't matter because each one of them even in the Old Testament with Moses singing these two songs, each one of them is a song of praise in light of God's judgment. And remember, this is an, this is an example for us of what's going on in heaven and what we're supposed to be doing here today as God, we know that God's judgments are coming as well. We sing praises of God's righteousness, of God's just nature. We sing praises of the wrath that's going to come, not because we want people to die and go to hell, but because God's going to make everything that's wrong right. I would encourage you to read Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 11 on through verse 18, to get an idea of what even Moses proclaimed there. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 through 43. But as we continue on and kind of wrap it up here. It says in verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. Now remember that. This is the throne room of God. You've got you to keep in mind everything that we've been told leading up to this point because there's a lot going on in the throne room of God, right? 
There's the 24 elders. There's angels there. There's now the tribulation saints. They're all in there. And man, at times they're breaking out in praise of worship of God. This is the tabernacle, the temple of God, the throne room of God. And in verse 5, it says, again, it was opened up. And out of the temple, out of this throne room of God, the seven angels having these seven plagues and these bowls clothed in pure linen and having their chests girded with gold, with gold bands, these guys came out. And then one of the four living creatures, and you remember if you look back to Revelation chapter 5, it talks about these four living creatures with the different faces. It's the same ones. In heaven, they gave the seven angels the golden bowls of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then in verse 8, then in verse 8, it says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And what was the result? No one could enter. So if you were in there, what do you think happened? You got driven out. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's, this should remind you of what happened when the, when the temple of the tabernacle was first dedicated. First with the tabernacle and then the temple because it tells us that God's presence filled and and the same dark smoke was evident the glory of the kind of glory of god and again everyone was driven out so that no one could come in and at that time when the tabernacle was dedicated it was a time of rejoicing and sacrifices were being made and praise to god because god had come from heaven and made himself known to man here on earth at that time but here it says that the same glory of god was revealed in smoke and in power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. I find that very, very interesting. And even though all of heaven is praising God, I want to point this out, in giving glory to God for the judgment to come, understand it's not like heaven's having some kind of party over it. They're not rejoicing of the suffering and of the, 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 the damnation that's happening to the inhabitants of the earth. They're rejoicing and giving praise over who God is. Read the song. It's not like they're going, yeah, God's getting them. It's not that. And we got to be careful because that's not what we're doing here. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We're called to love. We're called to share the truth, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be forgiving. Remember, the Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is that our heart? Do we take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but still rejoice over the, the pure and just nature of God? And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and as these last bowls of wrath are being poured out, it means the death of the wicked that God takes no pleasure in. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to kind of get prepared and end, and I'll end with this. And, and um, it's the death of Satan that we read of here. It's the death of, uh, in chapter 16, we're going to read about it. It's the death specifically of those who follow and worship Satan as God. And even in these things, God still takes no pleasure. It's not like people think God's not like, oh, finally, I get to get him. It's not that way. But yet, we kind of mock that and make fun of that. But guys, there's people out there who believe that and think that about our God. And it's not true. It's a satanic deception. And I believe that all this is made evident as we're told 
here that when the seven angels come out of the temple in heaven, that they are followed by the smoke from God which fills the temple in heaven, the very throne room of God, making it so that no one can enter until this time is completed, until this wrath of God, <coughs> this final wrath of God is complete. Now, many commentators speculate that this is because God is so full of wrath that no one can come near. And it, 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 it could be. It's opinion, it's speculation, it could be the case. We don't know for sure. But here's my opinion, okay? Everybody's got them. They're like armpits, they stink. But if I take the whole counsel of the Word of God here from what we've gone through, and I see the nature of God being revealed to me, even in the midst of this wrath and outpouring of God's judgment over and over again, that God's long-suffering, that God's merciful, when, when it comes to this point, well, my opinion is, is that I believe the heavenly throne room of God is filled, and, and, and no one can come in because I believe it's because God wants to be alone. I believe it's because God wants to be alone. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to be alone as he mourns and he grieves over what he must do. Remember, God loves us so much, the world, the whole world so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that same God that sent His Son to die for us on the cross that left eternity to be here so that we could be in a relationship with Him while we were still in the midst of our sins. That same God is the same God who is pouring out His wrath upon the earth and He does it reluctantly. I would encourage you, and we're going to end with this and I'm going to invite the, the guys to come forward into the chairs. I would encourage you again to remember what our response should be. I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I don't have time to, to close with that this morning. But remember, these things, this knowledge, there's a blessing in it, but there's a response that must flow from our lives. First, we must glorify the Lord God for who He is, not put Him on the judgment seat, and us as the judge. And furthermore, we must see that time is short. We must live as victors. And we've got to share with the world around us of the hope that they too can have in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. If you guys want to come forward. Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, we truly do give you our praise and our worship. And Father, as we set this time aside for prayer, we pray, God, that you would hear us, that you would answer our prayers, and God, that you would save those who we love, that you love, Lord, as well. Those who are dear to us, God, we pray you would save them that You would draw them to You, that You would give us the words to speak or put other people in their lives to hear um, the truth. And Father, as we pray for their salvation and other requests and needs that we have this morning, God, we ask that You would answer them according to Your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.